Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Shande Person is a software engineer, instructor, blogger, and speaker. She's currently a senior software engineer at Netflix and joins us today from Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Shande Person, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks, Robbie. Great to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? (laughs) I think the biggest aspect of software that's well-maintained is that it's composable. Composable software is software that is broken out into its smallest parts. So breaking out functions so that they don't do multiple things. Each function is responsible for one thing. Variables are responsible for one thing. There's a really good talk by Rich Hickey. It's called Simple Made Easy. And it uses the analogy of a castle. And it really kind of hit home for me when I when I watched that. And so to build a castle, he's t- he talks about you have two options. There's a Lego castle versus a knitted castle. And if you're trying to remodel or refactor this castle, for many reasons, it's much easier when you have a Lego castle than a knitted castle. Like a, a Lego castle, you can just take things apart. And because they're already broken up into their smaller chunks, designed in such a way that any Lego would fit with another Lego it's pretty easy to do the refactoring and and remodeling without breaking the rest of the castle. A knitted castle, by contrast, if you want to refactor it, you have to do a lot of cutting and you just kind of unravel everything. And so code that is maintainable is more like that Lego castle where it's already broken up into these smaller pieces. So when the time comes inevitably to do any refactoring or adding things, or even in a lot of instances, say you acquire another company that their code base has no concept of your code, your existing code base, but somehow you have to merge the two together. Is your software, is your code base like that Lego block where the other code base can just plop right in and fit with the least amount of damage? So overall, maintainable software is able to be broken up into smaller parts. It's great for testing as well, so that you're only testing on one thing, and it helps to reduce bugs and unexpected behavior. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that framed that way around, like thinking about like a Legos and the castle. I'm going to have to definitely look up that talk and include that, a link to that in the show notes, trying to pull together like, oh, we want a bigger window for whatever inner castle or, or a new door. Like you could remove the bricks around without the whole structure collapsing in the process, hopefully. Yeah. There was a code base that I kind of throw shade at <laughs> or I'll subtweet in in different conversations um, that I worked with that had that very knitted castle feel. And first off, it's really tough to onboard with a code base like that to figure out what the code is doing. Because so many different pieces of it are intertwined. So finding out, okay, if I change this one thing, what is this going to affect? It, it can take days just to, to figure out how to make a small change without breaking things. And then when the time comes to actually make that change and you feel like you have enough information to be able to start diving into the code, you really have to do a, a good job of testing all along the way. Because when the code is very um, intertwined in 
a non-composable way, any small change could end up breaking something that you don't expect in like files and files ago or um, just introduce like weird, weird bugs that people tried to put band-aids over and you just like kind of unravel that. So it's important. It, it is important. It's in the moment as you're coding, it's hard. It can be hard if you're not in practice of building composable code, but future you and the future engineers who work with you <laughs> will definitely thank you for doing that. Do you think teams set out to like, we're going to knit a castle or what sort of things do you think contribute to that ending up being in the case? Probably heard about spaghetti code a lot. Spaghetti tastes good, but uh, I don't know that we always like, no, this project's going to be different. What do you think happens along the way? Well, I can tell you what happened in the case of the code base that, that I was working with is that people just didn't know better. It was um, doing the best with what they had. And um, I'm a front-end engineer. The folks that were working with this code base, which was built in React and TypeScript, are back-end engineers, and they're familiar with that. So React was new to them, and they're doing what they can do using the practices that they used in Java or Go or whatever language that they're familiar with on the back end, really the principle should be the same on the front end and the back end. So I think composable code is important no matter which side of the, the code that you're on. But when you're unfamiliar with a certain language, you're just trying to survive. Like I, in, I think in analogy. So in my head, I think of them just, you know, drowning and like, let me just get this React code out. Like, let me just breathe and survive. And so they're just doing what it takes to get that code out there. Like, let me, you know, I, I don't have no concept of CSS or all these tips and tricks. So let me just do what I can and not worry about all of these different best practices. So I don't think it's anything intentional, but I, I think that if your biggest concern is just like either a, a short deadline or, you know, I just, I'm not familiar with this certain language, but I have to do what I have to do to get this MVP out there. Um, MVP is minimum viable product, by the way. Um, I, I just need to get whatever I can out there for people to see. Then sometimes people will skip over a lot of the best practices, like integrating tests um, within their code bases or making sure that their code is composable and maintainable for the future. You make an interesting point there around you know, maybe there are back-end developers that are needing to work more on the front end, and so you might have multiple things that are in, happening. They're learning a new technology, potentially. Um, and so it's a different paradigm. Um, I haven't done much front-end coding myself, so I know that it's. I'm a little nervous every time I interact with some React stuff. I'm like, I don't really know what I'm doing. But I'll figure it out, I think. I feel confident enough that I can figure out how to make something work. Does it does it work long-term is another question entirely. And then there's another element of, like, if you mentioned testing there, if you're trying to also... If you're a back-end developer that's now doing more front-end code, you potentially needing to learn that new framework on the front-end, but also how do you test this type of browser-focused you know, experience? Assuming I'm making an assumption there, right? we're talking about browser-based web apps or something. How do you go about also writing automated tests and that? So you're learning multiple tools in parallel. And I was also thinking about not everybody in all, all facets of different types of careers and different that are, that are say, non-software development careers where you probably don't hire someone that's never laid tile before to come in and lay tile for you. That person's probably been doing it for a while, and they probably were hired by someone as a as an apprentice at some point and learned, unless maybe they watched some YouTube videos. I don't know. Maybe that happens too. But 
it's just interesting, like we don't always have the luxury in the software world because we're technology, new technology is coming and there's sometimes there's no nobody with experience in that new tool set before. So you're kind of all trying to figure it out where the team decides they want to use the technology to, at the same time, but it's new to them all. Do you think that is a, a wise pattern for teams to to consider or is it just part of the reality of just what the world of software engineering is always going to be like? I, th- I think it is just uh, more the latter. Like it's it's something that it, it happens. Um, people have ideas and they have to make do with what they've got. And so, and I know we'll get into my story in a bit, but I come from the business side of the world. I come from sales. People there, just like any any other field, they have these big ideas, but they don't in you know business or wherever they have these big ideas, but they don't know how to put those on paper. And so they don't even know like what's a backend engineer versus a front end engineer, like what language, what's React versus Python. They see an engineer and they're like, hey, could you build me a cryptocurrency? Or, you know, hey, you know, I hear that you're a front end engineer, like you must know about Java, right? <laughs> and they have they, they don't know, like they're not expected to know that, but they're doing the best that they can with what they have. And, you know, maybe they have this small budget to get this this app out there. They have somebody who wants to come on board as their founding engineer or chief technical officer, but it's really just the two of them. And this person has a limited skill set because we all have our areas of expertise. Um, as engineers, it's impossible to know everything about everything. So, you know, they're just in a, in a point where they have this full, complete app that they have to build out, but they only have expertise in a certain area of it. So they're doing the best that they can and getting the thing out there. And then everything else will come later. Hey, we'll hire other engineers. We'll hire a front end engineer when we get the budget or when we get the time. But it's important right now, we have these investors that are waiting to see something. So we have to meet these deadlines. And so, you know, that can put a lot of pressure on things and cause people to make decisions that they wouldn't make if they had better resources. Recently, I was had another guest on who was talking about how Sometimes that initial developer on a project that's like, you know, the one that's going to chart out and because it's going to impact everybody else that works on that project for probably even beyond just even that particular software. It sets a a tone for that that particular organization and that piece of software based on how what they do. And if they're by themselves, I know as someone that my company inherits a lot of projects that come from small teams or even teams of one that might be working on a project for a couple of years or it's bounced between freelancers for a couple of years before it ends up, you know, coming to like we're we're a software consultancy. So we tend to work on existing software projects that someone else had built at some point. We see that there's a lot of interesting patterns where like, okay, you get that the person was trying to follow some good best practices early on. But they also it becomes this thing where it's like, well, Sometimes those best patterns are best patterns because you've got a team to help reinforce that. But when you're by yourself, what's the benefit of having super helpful documentation for mystery person that doesn't exist yet? Automated tests, you know how, you know it's working, you know, like, well, I'll get to that at some point. Uh, There's a lot of things that you start to forgo. Your git commit messages tend to get a little sloppier. You know, nobody else is going to see this, right? You're like, it's, ah, it's just, you just swipe every, sweep everything under the refrigerator or something and, and, and call it a day. But, uh, until someone else has to like, what happened? And you're like, oh no, I get it. You're working by yourself. So I always try to be empathetic towards the person that's probably had a lot on their plate 
maybe in some ways they wish that they could have had a team to work with early on, but they don't always have the resources and finance to do that. So a lot of those projects that also people work on by themselves um, or early on in um, startups never, the businesses aren't successful anyway. So there's kind of like an interesting thing, like who knows if it, you really needed to put that much effort into following all the best practices at the very beginning if you don't even know if the thing is going to be a viable product in the first place, right? So Yeah, 100%. Yeah, like investors don't care about the tests that you've put in there. They don't care about, you know, that you have React testing library. They don't care that you're using React versus Vue or whatever. They care that you have a product that people can use and it's an easy enough user experience so that they can get the metrics that they need to decide, okay, this is worth, however, a hundred million dollars or nothing. So, um, and that's it. Like all the documentation, all that good stuff, all of the great variable names, all the composability, all of that stuff can, can come later. So I, I feel like that's where people make their biggest skip over a lot of the best practices is in the beginning when it's just like, let's just get it out there. <laughs> I can imagine there's some people out there cringing too, thinking that we we're advocating for that. But I, also, I think there's an interesting, healthy balance there of like some companies aren't successful because their projects never ship because you can be perfectionist and be like, well, it's not quite ready yet. It can't scale yet. Like we don't have customer one yet. So that's a good point. Yeah, that's an absolutely good point. There's a good balance. So you mentioned that you've had a maybe less a typical journey into becoming a software engineer. But I was curious because I know that you you were a salesperson for a long time. Why the change? What type of sales and how do you feel like that's helped you as a software engineer? That's a good question. So um, to answer the first part of your question, I, I was in sales. I was in sales for 12 years. Actually, in undergrad, I majored in entrepreneurship, which yeah, you don't need an entrepreneurship degree to be an entrepreneur. In fact, I might even go as far as to say, like, don't, like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, get a trade. Um, but that's an aspect of business. So the the school I went to, or it was a it was a business school, and one of my entrepreneurship professors, who he was an adjunct professor, he had never worked for anybody in his life, and this was his way of giving back. And he said the best way to understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur is to start a commission-only sales job. So at the time, I was like, no, 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 I'm putting up an evil cross. Like, I don't want to be in sales. Like, I could never do that. I could never, like, cold call. I could never, like, knock on doors. That's scary. And I didn't want to do that. But I ended up with an entrepreneurship degree. That's where I ended up. I wanted to try it out and see how I could do. And I found that I was really good at it. And still my passion was for entrepreneurship and I wanted to to run a business. But I found that I was good and interested in everything that came along with sales. Not the money, well, the money, of course, but what I was really interested in was the people, like learning about people, what makes them tick, how to have those conversations. Because sales is a career built on soft skills. So it was all about learning how to talk, how to communicate, use your body language, because some of my sales was um, in person at trade shows, learning how you use the appropriate body language, the correct tone on the phone to get people to trust you very quickly, to want to buy from you, and then learn to ask questions so that people, you could get information about the things that people needed. And I loved having those connections with people. And so I was in sales for 12 years. Um, tech wasn't something and tech meaning engineering. Um, it wasn't something that I 
thought that I was interested in. I had always been like tinkering with computers, but I think it was probably two or three years after I graduated that I got a job at a company called MathWorks, which um, is a company that uh, develops and sells a programming language for engineers. And my customers were literal rocket scientists. NASA was my customer. So I was surprisingly fascinated with everything that they were doing with the software that they were using. There were people who were building rocket ships with MATLAB. There were also people who were using it to measure the appropriate combination of chemicals to make the largest oranges from an orange tree. Like, <laughs> So I was fascinated with it, but everybody had all of these advanced degrees in like astrophysics. And I'm like, I'm not going back to school for that. I'm not really interested in like advanced chemistry degree. So I just continued down the sales path. Then in 2015, I decided to pursue my passions for entrepreneurship, left the workforce altogether and started an online business, which was the details of it aren't important, but I was like, part of it was most of it was online. I had a Shopify site. And then I was also using my sales skills to go door to door I got some big, big names. Like um, there was a, a really big hotel chain that got, it, it was all organic foods. So they um, put one of my snacks in all of their mini bars. And so, yeah, so I was able to use my sales skills to, to do that. But what I found the most fascinating was actually learning Liquid, which is Shopify's Ruby-based language to customize my site. But I still in my head thought that you needed to have this advanced degree to be an engineer. So fast forward to a couple of years later where I saw this ad for Codecademy and somebody commented underneath and was like, you don't need a degree in um, computer science to be an engineer. So I decided to like dabble in it for a little bit and I loved it so much. Like I, I gave myself a half an hour every day to spend time to learn to code as just a hobby, but I would find myself like four hours up to like two in the morning coding. And I'm like, man, this is what I should be doing. And yeah. So over time, like I gradually decided that, um, like sales, it was the safe path for me because it was the path that I had known and been really successful with. So I, like part of me was scared, but I also knew that as much as I loved what I was doing with the coding, this is worth it. I'll give it a shot. So that's kind of how I, um, leaned into engineering. Um, so that was a year ago. Yeah, thanks for kind of providing an overview of that. The knowing that you worked in a couple of different areas there, and even going through, I'm thinking about the, you know you getting exposed to Liquid and Shopify is kind of like a, a gateway drug, I guess, into coding more <laughs> yourself. Outside of knowing that you've been around stuff because you've been selling stuff, you know, selling software at your previous employer. The one of the things that you know it's interesting because on on my end, I needed to figure out. I wanted to like sell stickers on the internet. So I'm like, how do I do that? How do I put websites together? How do I do this? How can I make a website? Can I can't afford to pay someone to do it? So I got to figure this out myself. And this was like in the like late '90s, but uh, it was still like web-based stuff. I'm like, oh, I can use these open source things. And like, how does this thing work? I don't know. And then just just keep plugging away until something worked. So I, that was like my path into it, and being like, a, oh, then learned that I was like, oh, I, people will pay me to work on their projects. That's interesting. Oh, I can work for myself doing that. But one of the things that you were talking about in terms of like entrepreneurship and maybe it sounded like you would maybe not advocate for people to become entrepreneurs. And one of the things that I've always wondered is like if knowing what I know that I've been running my business for like eight, 19 years or whatever it's been now, I don't think of knowing what I know now, I feel like it would be really hard for me to say like, oh, that sounds like a really smart 
life decision, Robbie, to like go start a business because I feel like I know too much about what it's actually like. I'm like, what would it have been like just to work for someone else as a software engineer? <laughs> but I digress. But yeah, it, it's important to scratch that itch, though. Like, I'm I'm glad that I did it, and I'm not against being an entrepreneur. I'm what I'd say to rethink is to have your path to entrepreneurship be, let me get a degree in entrepreneurship and then become an entrepreneur from there. Like what I thought was that I'll come out after four years, I'll be Oprah, I'll be a billionaire and I'll know everything about owning a business. And that's not what you learn in entrepreneurship school. Let me tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think people, there might be people listening. I'm going to make an assumption, a generalization around sales. I guess I have to do sales for my company. So I do sales. So I'm an engineer that needed to learn how to like sell my team's skills to other people. And I've learned that sales isn't isn't a bad thing. This isn't like people are coming to us because they need something. We're here to help. The salesperson is the person that's trying to understand, make sure that they're the right fit. You don't want to just like, we're not a good fit to work with every potential client that comes our way or that we talk to. Like we need to know that. I'm like, oh, you'll just, my employees will quit if I work with you because you're not going to be a good client, you know, like, and you, or we're not going to have the right product or we're not going to be able to, you know, give you what you need. That, that, you know, you're talking about picking up those skills over the years. That's how do you think that's going to help you as a software engineer? It's come in handy a lot. So, um, when I talk to the majority of engineers that I talk to, the hardest thing for them in working with a team, and by the way, engineering is a very team-based sport. It's not individualistic like sales is. So you need to know how to collaborate, how to work with people, how to provide feedback, how to get feedback, accept it, and learn from it and improve from it. All of those are involved in sales. So I, I find that when I talk with other engineers, what they find is the most difficult is building those soft skills and improving those soft skills. Like one, it's just uncomfortable for them. For most people it is, it's uncomfortable. And then also they just don't make the time to improve it. When in sales, you're forced to do that. Like if you're not getting better at your soft skills, if you're not actively practicing, you're not selling. Having those 12 years of practice has helped me to easily just be able to jump in on teams to be able to lead projects without being, you know, having the leader title, to be able to kind of get my way or negotiate compromise without people feeling like, oh, she is knocking things over. She just came in here and she just wants everything how she wants it. Like everybody feels like, at least this is the way that I feel about myself, but I feel like everybody thinks, you know, I'm gentle. Like I, I approach things with curiosity and I come and I, raise up an issue very delicately. And I'm like, hey, what does everybody think? But I'm able to ask questions in a way that leads them to the answer that I wanted everybody to land on. So um, I'm able to be comfortable with putting myself out there and being wrong and getting told no. It doesn't bother me because I have a short-term memory because I'm, I've gotten hung up on more times than <laughs> I can even I can't even count. So I'm used to that. I'm I'm comfortable with I'm comfortable with negative feedback and I'm comfortable with just navigating myself in situations with people at all levels because I've had to sell to ICs, individual contributors, I've had to sell to CEOs, I've had to sell with to people with really big egos, people who want to talk for a long time, just you know, to talk. So yeah, I, I'm I'm comfortable with all that. So I think when you're working on a team with multiple personalities, with people with all different personalities, with um, different backgrounds, levels, 
it really helps you to be the glue. Um, and that's what I've, I'm using this term straight from one of my previous managers Miles, is that um, act is kind of like the cultural glue and um, make sure that everybody stays connected and in con- constant communication. One of the things that you, you mentioned there was, was around, you're, you're comfortable with people saying no. And I have noticed from people that have worked for on my team over the years is that that is like a huge blow to them when they're like pitch something to a client or to their team or to me. And I'm like, no, not maybe not, not now <laughs> or no, we're not going to do that right now. It sounds like a great idea, but that we can't fit that into the budget or the schedule right now. Let's discuss it again. Sometimes I always worry that people take that and say, that's like a no forever. So they never approach it again, but then they, they just stop asking some at some point, right? And like, well, I've asked, and they, I got to know, or they're not, they're afraid of rejection, right? And it's like, what if we could all just ask for what we want or what we need and make a compelling case? And sometimes we're going to get those things, but sometimes we don't. For your peers and people listening, do you have any advice or recommendations for how people could not just deal with the no, but how to maybe even should they be doing something to practice getting no's more often to build up the resilience? Yeah. That's a really good question. So um, without like switching careers and going into sales, some things that you could do, actually, these are just kind of like, it's vague advice, not very tactical things, but work on, work on having a short-term memory. When people give you positive things, hold on to that and then use that to carry you through the negative. Really what it comes down to is just putting yourself out there more. And you have to, you in order to, get comfortable hearing no, you're going to have to hear no's. And so you're just going to have to just keep on pitching and pitching and pitching. One thing to think about as you're doing that is to, this is something that I've struggled with and I'm still working on is just to not feel like everything has to be perfect. So try pitching things before it's even ready yet. And maybe at least it did for me, it, it makes you feel less committed. Like, okay, you know, I didn't, I didn't spend all the time that I could um, on this thing. I didn't put like all my blood, sweat and tears into it. So if I hear a no, it's not going to be that bad. Cause I already know, like it's, it's not that perfect. So, um, throw a lot more out there. So higher quantity. And it, <laughs> it sounds funny to say less quality too, but just be comfortable. It doesn't have to be perfect when you pitch it out there, actively look for feedback. So like solicit feedback from other people. This is an uncomfortable thing, like one thing that I did in in the very beginning, or I I avoided feedback. Again, I would make sure that things were all perfect, but then I would pitch it in a way so that people couldn't really give me feedback. Like, okay, I'm going to send it over an email and, or I'm going to say that I already did this and I'm just going to ask for forgiveness later, throw it out there and then ask people like, give me the, the dirty of it. Like, what do you love about it? But also give me like pick it apart and then ask them, and you should do this yourself too, but ask them to put themselves in the shoes of whoever your customer is or whoever the naysayer is. Like, please be my devil's advocate. Like show me, shine a light on every area just to make sure that I'm not thinking of, I'm I'm not missing anything. So I think if you approach it just kind of with the mindset of like, you're looking for a no, you're looking for dissent, it makes it easier to digest when you get it because it's like, okay, yeah, I, I asked for this in the first place. That's some, I think, some really good advice there. I, I, I think that there's so many times where, you know, I've tried to provide feedback in a way or knowing that there are people like 
it's been very rare that anyone's ever like, no, 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 like, just please level with me. I need some constructive feedback on this. And like, I, I feel like maybe there's ways it could be, this could be better or whatever it is. Uh, one of the things that I've also kind of, kind of, you mentioned like short-term memory for like negative feedback or constructive feedback or however you want to interpret that. One of the things that I've always kind of encouraged people that I work with is to not pitch ideas for like the forever. Like this isn't like, oh, we should start doing this until the end of time. It's more like, can we pilot this? Can we try this out for the next few months? That is, I find like such an easier thing for someone to wrap their head around like, oh, this isn't like a forever, like why would we not want to try something for a period of time and then reevaluate it, which is what we should be doing as software engineers and professionals in any industry probably. It's just like time box it a little bit. Even that's also been advice I've been given on how to solicit feedback. It's like, how am I doing in my job? is like a really tough question to answer for someone, but like, how have I been doing the last 30 days? Or how have things been going in a very, like time box it to a very smaller, narrow thing. So someone can be like, oh, I can get my head into that space. So you've been working on those two projects the last month, like these features or what have you. So it's more like more recent versus like, just I'm looking for feedback from my peers. Yeah, I think that's really good. You made me think of another point is that what we do at Netflix too is we encourage A/B testing when it comes to building products. Like we'll just try things and we'll we'll do all that farming for a descent. Everybody gets their input, but then we'll just like take a risk and then let's say you know we'll do it this way and then we'll make a little tweak and we'll also do it this type B version and then see what the actual results are and then the data will speak for itself. And I know other companies. I think maybe it's Google. They celebrate mistakes and so I think. Part of it, too, is just like, like you talked about, Robbie, is encouraging everybody as part of the culture. Like, okay, this is welcome. Like, I want you to, I want you to try it. Like, I want you to make a mistake. I want you to just think for the short term sometimes. Um, you know, don't think way, way too far in the distance and think that this is the only way that things could ever be. We can never change it. <laughs> Gets more comfortable, like, trying out new things and hearing no, too. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. So you've been at your you've been at Netflix for now for a few months and you don't have to go into all the the weeds of like what it's like to work there. Um, but you know, as you go into a new role in a senior role, at, at part of joining a team, have you found that there's some like effective strategies to be able to come in and show impact in a short period of time? Yeah, I think the first step is to get to know people, both on a personal level and a professional level. So, um, and it's difficult in a virtual world too. So I'll give you my, my tips on that. I am a remote employee based in Georgia. Everybody, for the most part, is in California, but we're all working remote because of COVID. So um, getting to know people isn't 
I can't just bump into people in the hallways like I used to. So what I have been doing is just setting up one-on-ones with folks and it's not just about work. Like, let me talk about your family. Do you have kids? Where do you live? How did you end up there? Learning about the people that I work with and finding out what their, what their goals are. What I get from that is when it comes time for me to say, okay, I want to take on this project. I want to lead this project. I want to be part of this project. I incorporate what their goals are with the way that I pitch it. So I'll try to give you, this is a made up example, but let's say, Robbie, your goal is to, you want to propose next year, but you're saving for a ring, right? I will pitch this product as something that will give you the opportunity to make a little bit of extra cash on the side so that you can get to that ring, you know? So like just throwing little things out there, or this will give you a little bit more time so that you can make sure that you're able to walk your dog every day. I know that you, you know, haven't been able to have much time to that. So I'm going to take on this part of it. You get to walk your dog and then um, you take this part of it. So just making sure that they know that I'm, I'm thinking of them as a complete person because those are the those are the things that were, are most important when we work. So that's just a little a little trick. But other than that is to make sure that you have constant communication with folks. So look for dissent, look for feedback, throw things up, just like we talked about, like throw things up as um, an idea. And I want everybody else's input. Everybody else has all of these different levels of expertise, all these different backgrounds have valuable things that they can add to whatever this decision is and just constantly communicate. So try to find if, you know, you're working on a project, like I was lucky enough to be able to join a project as it's in its infancy and find my spot in it. But like the, the way that I had to do that was just asking people like, okay, where are we at with this project? What are the areas for opportunity? And then kind of like pitching my skills as, okay, you know what? I could fit into this project right here and I can be the quarterback for this piece of our, our little world here. So, um, to kind of summarize is just get to know people, ask a lot of questions and then continue to communicate along the way, both the good and the bad and look out for, look out for positive and and negative feedback. I'm Curious, and maybe uh, if you don't want you to share your secret sauce or anything necessarily, but as someone that worked in sales, I'm sure you maybe have a lot of experience using CRMs. Do you use anything like that to remember these things about your coworkers? Do you have a, sh- a pattern or framework, or is this all in your head? Because trying to remember that whole short term memory thing. So I'm like, how do you remember all that stuff about your coworkers? <laughs> Yeah. You know what? I don't know. I don't know how, but I don't use a CRM for my coworkers. Even if I did, I don't know if I'd say that, but um, no, I don't. I don't use the CRM for them. I don't know. I think I use mnemonics, but I like, I'll repeat the same information. Like if somebody, one thing I love to remember is people's names because that makes everything personal. So if you tell me, okay, you know, my husband's name is this, I'm going to remember that. I'll just keep repeating it to myself and, you know, kind of pair you two together. Or even if I have to write it down, I will. I'm not going to remember everything, but the key highlights like, yeah, you're getting married next year. Okay. I'll remember that. Or I'll put, if I know your birthday, I'll put it on the calendar so that I can make sure that I tell you happy birthday. That's great. So another topic that I was looking forward to speaking with you about is, um, is you've also, you also do instruction. Um, you produce, um, material and like our, have, courses up on AK and you also have a new course coming out called TypeScript for JavaScript developers. 
how did you find your, first of all, how did you find your way into instruction? And could you tell us a little bit about this new course you've coming up and who might be listening might, might want to take a look at that? Yeah. So, um, I, so the course is called TypeScript for JavaScript developers right now. Um, I'm actually working on a conference talk. So my, my video production is on hold until I get that done. But um, if you go to ts4js.com, tsforjs.com, you can sign up for updates and digital freebies as well. With regard to instruction, how I got into it was I made it a goal in 20, actually 2021. For 2021, I was going to do more public speaking. And (laughs) there's it's like a whole spite driven thing that, um, this is the real story behind the reason I started to public speak. I, I had a bad manager way back in the day who told me that I was a terrible public speaker. I let that be my story for 10 years. And then I decided in 2021, okay, I'm going to rewrite that story. Like I'm going to, this is the life that I want to live is, you know what? I'm telling myself I'm a great public speaker and I'm just going to do it. It started as just like a spite different thing. Like I'm just going to speak wherever I can. I was doing it. And then I realized that in order to prepare for these like conference talks, these podcasts that I was doing, I had to learn a lot just so that I could sound smart, like sound good enough. I was still very new to, um, actually when I did my first conference talk, I hadn't started my first role in engineering yet. So I, I found that I had to learn a lot so that I sounded like I knew what I was talking about. So I realized it was a good vehicle, not only to help people who were in the same position that I was, like people who are trying to get into tech, but also a great way for me to learn a lot more and learn it so intensely. Like one, I have this deadline, but again, like I I just wanted to sound like I knew what I was talking about. So I had to learn things so deeply that I could articulate it and teach it to other people. So um, I found it to be a great way for me to learn and also help at the same time. So, and I I like it, like um, I like public speaking and I didn't realize that I did. (laughs) So um, it, it, it is one of those things same similar to just coding itself. Like I didn't think that it was for me. I didn't think that I was like, I could be good at it, but as I started to do it more, I saw so much value in it. And, um, then I got to be known as the react girl or the TypeScript girl or wherever, you know, whatever I was doing, wherever I was at. So where the idea for this TypeScript for JavaScript developers course came about was my, company that I was at, my last company, we were doing a refactor of a part of our code base from Angular 1 to React, then to TypeScript. And I was against, yeah, I know. I was against TypeScript. Um, I was just kind of overwhelmed with all of it, the static typing and everything. But I found that one, I wanted to help any other JavaScript developers who were going to be starting new to TypeScript or just, you know, curious to see the value in TypeScript and also learn for myself so that I could be a good contributor to the team. So it helped me to get up to speed really quickly. And that was probably like an integral part of what got me to Netflix in the first place was being able to like take on this additional project outside of work, get more people to know me in the tech community and get really good at this language TypeScript that Netflix uses as well. So there, there were so many benefits to it that it was worth all of the extra time that it, that it's 
been taking outside of work <laughs> as well. So the takeaway that I have here is for the listeners is that you don't need to already be an expert in something to set out to decide you want to write, talk, teach something. You can use that as like your one of your ways to kind of force yourself to learn something. It's like you've you've got a goal in mind. You might want to learn something because you just want to learn something. But if you're kind of committing yourself to like, well, I also signed up to give a talk about this in two months and I, I need to know what I'm talking about, right? So you're going to learn in preparation for it. And if you're not learning from it, then you might be just kind of phoning in a little bit at that point. But uh, <laughs> so, which is not bad. So it's still, it's just like, a, should hopefully be like, how am I going to learn through this process? And hopefully you become a much better speaker, but also a much better uh as you kind of mentioned earlier, kind of approaching things with a curious mindset so that you can continue to learn things. And then that is people appreciate and, and people like you doing that. And you can become one of those people speaking to the people in the audience there. Um, it's not inconceivable. You don't have to already know everything to. Exactly. Yeah. And you, I dip my toe in the water by talking about myself, telling my own stories. One big thing that I was afraid of is what if I'm wrong? Or what if I get up there and I'm teaching this this concept and I look stupid? I feel like I was reading a blog post or something that just encouraged me to just tell my story, just tell something that's happened to me. Nobody can tell me I'm wrong because this is, it's legit my story. So um, I started out just talking about this is my journey into tech or this is my journey trying to get into tech and then went from there. And you, even if all you're doing is just telling your story. You're still learning. You're learning how to be a better communicator. And this is on, I um, have a document with my manager that has my goals outlined for the rest of the year or for the for the next year. My One of my top four goals is to improve my verbal and, commu- verbal and written communication. And I'm doing that by doing speaking. It's a very valuable skill. And that was a big part in what got me here too in the first place. So don't undervalue it. Uh, don't think that even if you're just like learning how to talk, that's not something that is very, very um, valuable in our space as well. We'll be back with our interview with Sean Day in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media or pop over to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or whatever you call it and write a review. Much appreciated. Also, do you know anyone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to our interview with Sean Day Person. So I want to circle back to one of our earlier topics around maintainable code. And you had mentioned documentation is something that's very important as well. What do you believe are a few good traits of a well-documented code base or environment around documentation? Because there's code documentation, code level documentation, readme files, maybe wikis, all these different places that people document things. What, what sort of what's your current take on like where to document certain types of things and how do you cultivate a good culture of reliable, up-to-date documentation? Yeah, there's a lot. So in general, to get people to commit to keeping documentation up-to-date, that's tough. 
And so any way that you can automate that, write scripts so that, you know, there's information about your versions based on your commit messages or something like that. Um, as much as you can automate things and make it easier for folks, that's what's going to keep things as up to date as possible. One, documentation is is very important and documentation at different levels. There is also document a type of documentation that I think a lot of people leave out. And I've Netflix, I've seen do this great, but we do a lot of documentation at, at Netflix. We not only document what happened, we also document the decisions that were made that led to that, whatever happened. We document the good and the bad. So why did we choose to leave this out? What were the trade-offs? Like what, um, as we were going to make this decision, what did we have to sacrifice in order to get here? And why did we decide that we were going to get here? Is this something that we're going to go back to later and adjust? And it helps so that when new folks are onboarded or just us as humans, we forget things. I forget what I, what I did last weekend. Um, we forget things. And so it's unrealistic for us to expect to remember every single nuance of every single decision that we've made six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, when we said we were going to do something. So just keeping um, tabs on that and uh, writing it up in a document. So I do understand that it's not like a lot of, we just want to get into the code and we don't want to take the time stop and write the documentation, but think of your future self. It's I'm saying this as much to myself as I am to the listeners, but write it down. Your future self will appreciate you. Write down your decision-making process. That's critically important. I'm not a very big fan of comments in the code, but I know some people are. I think um, just be tactful about it. Like put comments in where there's something kind of funky, like something that you either are going to get back to later. This is mainly when you're writing... um, new code base. This is what I'm working on right now as a brand new project. Um, we'll put in like to do's and we'll put in things like, okay, I put in this funky little placeholder function that I'm going to change later. So, um, I think overall, just make sure that you've made that decision collectively with your team and then everybody follow the same conventions and you're golden. That's great. Is there a industry trend that you find yourself feeling a little skeptical about? I do. I do. I <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but um, crypto is... <laughs> so here's a, the, I started asking this question um, like four or five guests ago, and I think everybody said crypto. So you're not, you're not the only one. And I, will, I feel like I've added it in there just so I, I, I can have a moment to say that I'm oddly skeptical about it too. But then, like, curious, but then, like, not curious enough to spend that much time to learn about it. But then I go, but that person that I really respect that seems to know a lot about things that are way smarter about tech stuff than I am seems to be into it. So am I missing out on something? I don't know. I'm literally, I'm in the same exact boat. (laughs) It's like the ultimate FOMO thing. (laughs) But maybe also. But not FOMO enough. No, not. (laughs) All right. Well couple of quick last questions for you. Is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular basis? Yes. It's called Range by David Epstein. It is, the subtitle is Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I, I knew it was going to be a good book for me because I've switched careers. So if you've switched careers or if you're thinking of switching careers, Um, If you've ever changed your mind 
in life, this is a good book for you. This, um, it talks about, so the beginning part of it talks about there's two different models. Like there's one model that you are familiar with the tiger woods model. These like celebrity type models, right? Um, there's a tiger woods model where he's done the same thing for his entire life. Six months old, like walking on his dad's palm and like swinging a golf club. And, but then there's, and that's the one you hear about is like, you have to pick a niche. You have to stick with it forever. There's this grit to it. You have, you never give up and keep going. And that's the only way that you're going to make it. There's this other model that people don't really talk about, but there's so much research that goes behind it is being able to go from different domain to domain and take the knowledge that you've acquired from all those different domains and put it together. And that's what creates innovation. So it talks about um, this football player who never knew what he wanted to do, never decided on a sport until he was like, after 18, he took gymnastics, he took um, all different things. And he used the footwork and in um, gymnastics to be able to be more graceful and, or not more graceful, but he was a better football player because of it. Or Steve Jobs, who took a class in calligraphy, and that's what inspired him to add those fonts that made the Macs so popular in their early days. Um, and so that's a lot of my mantra is like, I took those skills and you, you know, we talked about this earlier, but taking certain skills, it's not a waste that I spent 12 years in sales. Actually, it's a benefit that I spent 12 years in sales. Cause now I have these soft skills that make me a better engineer, or it's not a waste that you learn to knit because now you know that knitting is not good. If you're making a castle, like you've learned all of this, diff these different things and you're taking areas from all different domains. I'm a parent. So I, you know, I'm able to very, I'm, I'm really good at prioritizing my time and making sure that I get to things when I need to. So yeah, you, it, it helps you to understand how you can use all of the different areas of your life to benefit you in whatever you do. And then it also just talks about like, th there's just a lot of cool facts in it. it. It goes into like different, each chapter has its own feel for it, but it's very validating if you feel like, like me, I felt like I was all over the place for a long time, but there, there is a common thread to your life, no matter who you are. And, um, there's a way that you can leverage everything that, you know, to, um, to be unique and, and to innovate. That's awesome. I'll definitely include a link to that. I hadn't heard of that book before. Um, so thank you for that and for giving it a nice little overview and review of that for us. Um, where can listeners best follow your thoughts and musings about software development and, the world uh, online. Yeah. So the benefit of having a unique name is that my first name is the handle for everything. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Shaundae, S-H-A-U-N-D-A-I. You can find me anywhere at Shaundae, um, but that's that's where I'm at. Polywork, LinkedIn, Instagram, <laughs> everything is at Shaundae. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Shande. Thank you so much for talking shop. Thanks, Robbie. Great to talk to you as well. 